This week on Dylan Friends, I'm joined by one of, if not the absolute GOAT of Australian basketball, Andrew Gaze. I've wanted to have this legend on the show for a long time, and it was a truly a pleasure to sit down and have a chat. We spoke about the boomers fresh off the Olympics and what the medal means for Australian basketball. We went all the way back to his playing days with the Melbourne Tigers and the boom of basketball and how big it actually was in Australia. The certain reasons it fell away and the reasons it's coming back bigger than ever, being one of the biggest breeding grounds for the NBA, even challenging the US college system in recent years. We touched on some of the outrageous stories of international basketball and some of the crazy lifestyles his teammates led and also his amazing outlook on life and positivity that he shares with everyone. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. It was unreal. By the way, it would honestly mean the world to me if you could like, subscribe on iTunes or follow on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to the show. It really does help grow the show and get it to more ears. If one of your mates might like it, maybe even share it with them because it would make me smile. It means the world. Thanks so much. Let's go. My name is Deborah, Dylan's mum. Welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast. Many ways, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. Tears. 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 Strength. I'm like, I run. She's like, yeah. everyone runs. I'm like, but does everyone go to the Olympics? They're sitting there meditating, going, oh my God, I think I'm meditating. How this is for meditating? It's like, <laughs> we had a Wu Tang call. I was like, yo, Dylan, thanks for getting us in. Just love it's it. knuckle puck time. Yeah. It's like, it's like <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Andrew Gaze, wow, this is big, this is huge. Welcome to the Dylan Friends podcast, my friend. No, thank you very much. I feel uh, honoured to be invited to be one of the guests. And, um, of course, we've spoken in the past, but uh, when I uh, let my family know that I was going, coming on your program, geez, the, uh, my daughter and my son, my uh, youngest daughter and youngest son, they were very, uh, they didn't believe me. So such is the status you've built up for yourself that you're a superstar now. So honoured to be a part of it and have a chat. Well, mate, I've been learning from the best. As I said, I went on your podcast with yourself and Leonard Copeland. and. Yes. Uh, when I've got mentors like yourself, it's hard not to succeed sometimes. So I will put that down to a lot of your success. But a big shout out to you, to your son and daughter. I'll have to send over some merch for for the whole family. And you got um, merch? Oh yeah, definitely. My goodness! So I was talking to Mark Howard and uh, how he does uh, a bit of that, and he says he's just starting up in the merch arrangement and. Things haven't prospered as well as what he would like as far as the <laughs> merchandising side of things, but uh, he's still trying to figure that part of him out, and he's, he does really well with his podcast as well. He does, mate. He's done great things, and uh, so have you, but that's what we'll talk about today. Hey, quickly, we did mention we've been friends for a while now. Obviously, I went on your podcast. Yep. Um, you're returning the favour, and there was something that I was a little bit nervous to talk to you about last time. Um, and something I wasn't sure to bring up or not, but I thought now that we've sort of moved on to the next phase of our friendship, I thought I had to tell you about. And um, being a 90s kid, 93, I, I grew up and, geez, that was just a, an incredible time for, for basketball in Australia. And, you know, I didn't come from a wealthy family, but there were some things that I really got treated to at, at certain stages. And, and one of them was being football boots and nice. basketball shoes. Yes. And back then, you know, a young, young, fresh-eyed kid, going, you know, he's playing for the Kingsbury Comets down at Diamond Valley Stadium. I wasn't a very good basketball, but I loved it. Rough and tough down there. Oh, yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> it was. And one year, um, you know, I was really treated to a pair of gazy uh, wow. basketball shoes. The red and white. Your parents were very frugal. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> it, was, it was honestly, like, I, I, I joke about it now, but it was very big for me back then. And um, where the where this story does sour is the fact that I only got to wear them once because I think I took them off because I didn't want to wear... Like, I wore them literally in the game. I didn't want to get them scuffed, as all kids do. Jeez. You don't want to get them scuffed. You wear them in the game and that's it. 
I took them off, had a little rest. I think I went and got maybe a Zappos and a, a Coke after. And, um, yeah, they got pinched. So I only got to wear them for one game. And today, just wondering if there was any stocked back at your place in the garage. I'd love to cop another pair and we could put them in the studio. Hey, I'm going to hit you up. I'll tell you, this, I'll give you a sneak peek of the... the, the, uh, the this is completely unscripted. Yeah. But these are the new ones that are coming out in, um, are coming out in Big W in the next week or so. These are... Oh, look at those bad boys. Oh, they fit me too. That, they're, they're just the little kids one. But here, hang on. This is the one that we've really gone out on a limb. This is more your pace right here. Woo! Oh, Look at those wow. bad boys. That's... <laughs> They're the ones coming out. So we've we've got we've modernised it since nine in the uh, when you bought yours or you had yours, but um, but no, it is a bit of fun and and like you say that it's funny you should mention that your own personal circumstances, but the the whole motivation when we just did this uh, when we started it back in probably our first range was back in two thousand five, and then um, we've re redone them right now. Is that Shoe basketball shoes are super expensive, yeah. And what our goal with these shoes has always been to try and put together the most affordable, but still, you know, at the end of the day, it is what it is. They're, they're entry level shoes, but high quality entry level shoes. So that's what we're trying to do. And um, and and we're in Big W. We partnered up with that. So it's not. I'm not trying to be some sort of martyr here, but um, I'm certainly not getting independently wealthy out of selling shoes. <laughs> Oh, mate, well, if you're happy to, we can talk off camera. We might have to do a little bit of a giveaway for our Dylan Friends fans because um, I know the, the Gazy audience would love a pair of no problems some, at all. some gazers. But it, I, I don't want to – look, we've got so much to talk about today, but there was one thing. One of my mates, Vedran, who is probably one of your biggest fans, and I, I don't know if you've actually blacklisted him. There might be a restraining <laughs> no. order on him. <laughs> no. But he actually plays basketball at MSAC lately. And, and as busy as you've been with Fox – with the Olympics, with just holding up basketball on your shoulders in, in Australia. You're also down at MSAC, and he says that you're still running around there. And, and as much as there's a cool, calm, collected, charisma, funny, handsome <laughs> man out there on the court, he says when the games get tight, elbows do get thrown. Yes, yes. No, well, well when you're it's, – it's like everything that um, – we've all got a bit of white line fever. I think anyone that's been able to get through to a reasonable level has got to have a little bit of that – competitive streak and um and and of course when i when i stopped playing i started to play just down on msac on a monday night and you go in there and everyone's a bit older and you're creaking and you don't stretch as much and you're just out there having a bit of fun but when there's a bit of trash talking going on or scores get a little tight you go back to those competitive days and you do whatever you can to get the win now unfortunately with the pandemic last year and this year i haven't played in it a long time and um it's you, you almost feel a little weird like you're not doing things your, your normal pattern is is broken up but i'm lucky i still do some coaching so i'm on a court regularly but um haven't been able to play a lot lately but no hopefully i didn't i didn't uh, throw too many of i'm usually i usually kill them with kindness not killing with elbows and stuff but every now and again you just get amongst it you know what it's like mate let's get into the last month because it's been it's been incredible for yourself for for the boomers for australia to be honest and i'll be quite frank like i am a basketball supporter i don't watch it avidly but even it's touching my heartstrings and how much i'm really just engaged in basketball and wanted to see it go well at the moment 
Um, the last month for yourself leading up to the Olympics even, how big has this been for Australian basketball? Oh, it's been huge, but I think it's the culmination of um, the last two, five, 10, 20 years. And it's, uh, these things don't happen by accident. They happen because of a set of circumstances that are created. And, and as such, basketball right now is, is getting a level of acceptance and recognition that, um, that was justified many, many years ago. But when you get a result like we've just received with our Boomers winning a, a bronze medal, it, it, it hits home and it's something more tangible that people can grab onto to realise just the strengths of the game. And we are so affected by um, the, the choices that of basketball fans have. Uh, during a basketball season, you can watch an NBL game, you can watch a college game, you can watch an NBA game, you can watch a EuroLeague game. All these things are, are easily to consume and it makes it for a real competitive environment. And a lot of casual fans that don't necessarily have a great understanding of the game, well, they'll think because of the hype and all the marketing that goes around the NBA in particular, that there's this perception that this is another world away. This is something completely different. And and no question that it is um, a better uh, depth of competition and the elite players there are the uber elite. But it still is. The, the, the difference between talents uh, in the NBL to the NBA, as we've seen recently, a lot, a lot of NBL players have the capacity to play in the NBA. So the standard isn't as great as what it, a lot of people may think. And because of the participation base and this incredible pyramid that basketball has, where you've got this very, very broad participation base at the bottom that, that nicely goes up to the top, which is our Australian team, uh, we've been able to get success with the Opals and, and, and now the Boomers for a, a reasonable amount of time. Now, because we've never actually won the medal and had an ultimate glory at the World Cup or the Olympics for the men, they probably haven't been given the same recognition as, say, our, our Opals team, because they have, but it's not as if they are miles away, like a lot mm. of people would think. And, and I think um, uh, just the way the game is these days with the NBL in particular here in Australia with our domestic problem, the way the game's marketed and the access that we still have to our Australian players that are in the NBA or in Europe has, has got this got the, uh, the support now of the broader population as well as the basketball community here in Australia. And, and that was um, one of the joys of the success that we had the other day is that, uh, that finally it seems like we're getting the, a level of recognition which most of us thought was due many years ago. Yeah, I think you're so right. But even going a little bit more on that, like for someone like me watching what what the Boomers and the Opals have done over the last yeah, 10 years, as you said, but especially what's happened in the latest latest Olympics is one thing I've really thought about in, in Australia is Australians don't care where you finish. All they care about is if you just give it a crack. And, and we've seen that with our Olympic, we've seen that with our other Olympians that have just, just absolutely given their absolute all. And all you have to do to be an Australian and be loved is to do that. And yeah. I think that's what probably epitomised this year with the boomers. It's not even the fact that um, they, they got the bronze. It's nearly this, like the culture that they've like created there and it's been created since, you know, your five Olympics that you've been through and the, the passion from the older generation to the younger generation. Um, Paddy Mills being the flag bearer, Joe Ingalls yeah. being a part of that. 
Daladova being a part of that, it actually feels like they really do love each other. Like, is, is that actually a thing? or is- No, it absolutely is. It is, and it extends beyond my time. I, I think one of the things that I don't have an explanation for other than just being involved in, in the boomers is that somehow or other over... A, long, a number of generations, there's been this passing over of the values it is to be in the boomers team. Now, this is not a written document. This is not something that is uh, there. You get a handbook on what the expectations are on being a boomer. It's one that's through experience and being part of the program that you're getting indoctrinated into the, uh, the system. And somehow or other, that has been passed on from generation to generation where there is this understanding of the privilege, there is an appreciation for the honour of uh, wearing a green gold jersey. It's making sure that it is regarded as the highest honour that you can have. And along with that, there are certain standards of behaviour that is expected of a boomer and respecting the game, uh, the respect you have for your competitors. And, and yes, there's going to be some uh, infractions along the way, but through that group, you're always held accountable. And um, I think we saw it probably in its most stark form when you had this campaign with a guy like Matisse Thibel, mm-hmm. who had never been a part of the Boomers, lived in Australia five or six years when he was very younger, but was invited to be part of this team. And and, and clearly when you have success, it's a lot easier to buy in, but uh, hearing his comments post the, the games about this group, the love, the way in which that there's this shared experience, uh, like he said, like no other. And mm. I think that that's heartwarming because it's something that we had to experience and you, you, um, you bring people into the boomers uh, environment and through your behaviours, these things are learnt rather than just saying, well, this is what you have to do just because. They are there because you've got really good examples of of what's acceptable. And I think we see that in, in Paddy Mills with Joe Ingalls and Paddy who, you know, he's has spent most of his time overseas but has a love and a respect for Australia and, of course, Australian basketball and using basketball as his vehicle to demonstrate his love and have an impact in ways well beyond just what goes on a basketball court. So it's um, it's heartwarming to see that. And I think that it's something that, as you alluded to, the broader population see it and recognise it in the way in which you behave, the way in which you interact with your teammates on the floor and also how you conduct yourself off the floor, which I think is is um, is something that we take great pride in as former boomers because we feel like the next generation is doing what we uh, put in place, not when I say we, even those before me put in place uh, in order to have the boomers stand for something. Yeah, I think uh, Matisse, uh, one thing that stood out to, to me that he said, um, I saw a small grab of was that it says more about you if you don't fit in with this team than it does about the team. And, and that was something Correct. that was, was pretty cool what he said. In saying that, and again, I'm not looking for a grab here at all with, with these comments, but obviously the decision for Ben Simmons to not um, 
play with the Australian team, it's been blown up out of proportion in Australia about, you know, him not wanting to play for his country and, and all these types of things. But I can understand in the four walls, um, I, I can imagine his teammates would be respecting that decision. What is that? How does that sort of sit with you? And has there been anything that's sort of stuck out for his teammates? I know he's got um, other things that he needs to fry in, in his career before he, he did that. Yeah, I think that, uh, as I said before, and when he announced that he was not going to be available for the Tokyo campaign, I think that um, it's disappointing for me because I think the benefits to him would be extraordinary. I think that Mm. it could have a very powerful um, impact on his development because you're in a, a team that no matter what, is going to wrap their arms around him, that is going yeah. to be very, very... It's a real safe environment for him because of that culture that's been developed. And, and, and if it's not a safe environment, someone's going to be held accountable for why it's not safe, such as um, the, the way in which the Boomers program has been built. So uh, he he's never really been involved with the senior program. He went on one tour, I think, when he was 17. It wasn't even a tour. I think it was games against New Zealand. There was a little test series against New Zealand um, uh, when he was really young. He played and, and won a silver medal with the Australian youth team, which is where some of those foundations are laid. But it, it's, it's different from being involved in, in the senior team. So uh, fortunately, as I understand it, it's, it's not that he's ever not wanted to be a part of the team. It's just that the circumstances with other commitments and where he's felt he can help hasn't always aligned. And there are some that you could say that given the situation he had with the NBA finals and the ridiculous tormenting that he was going through that that maybe it was the right decision now i personally because i know the boomer situation don't agree with that i i but it's not without logic to say that this is not right for me right now and i may not be of a great help to the boomers in this condition so there's pros and cons arguments for and against but to me it absolutely would be helpful and beneficial and my understanding is that he he does harbour a desire to to one day play for Australia it's not like he's put the red texture through the boomers and never wants to be involved Um, and I hope that at some stage in the future he does because he's a tremendous player that I think still could no matter how old you are can and what experience you've had can benefit from being a part of the, the the boomers program. Yeah, for sure. No, I totally agree. I think that uh, he's got some big things to do at the moment, but I don't feel like he, he's put the line through it and Australians would just love to see him out there because we are a supportive bunch, but um, yeah, I think we need to understand we as well that he's on his own journey. He's got some big things ahead of him. Hey, we, we were chatting earlier about basketball in the 90s and, and I suppose yeah. when you were playing with the Melbourne Tigers, um, I had my gazies for about <laughs> six, six days before they got pinched. Um, it, it was a massive... I, I feel honoured that someone would pinch them, by the way. Oh, mate, they were red hot. I think they got resold for double the price. Um, and I'll tell you what, there wasn't there wasn't much use of the ball getting anywhere near them either. So they probably would have just been reshelved back at the right. shop. Um, they weren't getting much scuff marks on them. But yeah, it was, it was a huge time for, for basketball then. I suppose, like, for me growing up, playing a little bit of basketball... Um, and, and obviously in your prime, absolutely dominating. It, it was such a, a big thing for the Melbourne Tigers. Firstly, I'd love for you to touch on that time for you and what that was actually like playing with the Melbourne Tigers, how big that was 
um, for you? What was like the, the crowds? What was it like with the engagement? And then where do you feel it's sort of dropped off in a stage of, of, of um, in Australia? Yeah, it was an unbelievable time to be involved in the sport. Uh, probably in the mid to early 80s, the, the NBL was first formed in 1979. And before that, it was state-run basketball, it was community basketball, where the vast majority of people were rank amateurs. I mean, actually, in many cases, elite-level basketball had to actually pay to actually play. So it was amateur to the extreme. And uh, in the early 80s, it started with the formation of the NBL. It, it started to become more professional and, and more resources were being put into the game. And I still remember um, when I was at that age where I was finishing high school and uh, going on to university, and not in my wildest dreams did I ever anticipate ever being a fully professional basketball player. Such was the, the state of the game and just realistically to think that one day you'd be able to derive enough of an income out of this but just by playing to to sustain life that was just some sort of fanciful dream uh, but it was remarkable how quickly it turned and in those from the mid 80s to the early 90s there was this complete transformation where we're going from playing in tin sheds to playing in entertainment centers hmm. and 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 as such there was this this attention and um, people coming to the games, not just as participants, because it's always been a highly participated sport, but now as fans. And you start to get that tribal support for your teams. And then probably from the 90s through to early 2000s, a lot of people reflect back on that as the so-called halcyon days of the game. Packing out the tennis centre, 15,000 people uh, against your crosstown rivals, the Giants or the Magic, and it was a time when I still remember on a night, um, and as a football person, and you, you'd, you'd uh, understand this, that we played on a, it was a Friday night, and we were playing against uh, the Magic, the Southeast Melbourne Magic. This is the early 90s. And literally, what is it? 600 metres away is the MCG, from the tennis centre to the MCG. And on that night, Fitzroy were playing North Melbourne at the MCG. We drew 15,000 people and there was something like 8,000 showed up for the North Melbourne playing. Such was the the interest in our game. And I think as a sport, we might have got a a little ahead of ourselves and, um, you know, the foundations weren't really there. There was this fashion element to the sport where everyone was coming and we loved it because there was the, the, the fan base was growing and you had a playing in these beautiful facilities but there was also I think a moment in the late 90s that I look back on and maybe it's because I'm a basketball person and I, I perhaps have a negative connotation to it but uh, there was a survey done and it rated um Michael Jordan as the most popular athlete in the country. And it was almost like, and this was in the late 90s, and it was almost like something resonated within Australia to say, this is an embarrassment. This This shouldn't be the case. How can you have an international sports personality as the most popular 
per, a sports person in this country. And it was almost like from that, and it was probably more coincidental than anything, but from that point on, there was this anti-basketball sentiment because it was perceived to be as an American game um, and that it, it was un-Australian to fall in love with what people think is and an equated to an American game. So that combined with um, some fundamental problems with the league, with its, its model, and some interesting decisions in regards to television, uh, all spiralled and, and made it uh, more difficult for the NBL. And as such, you, in the early 2000s, you had a lot of teams falling by the wayside. And it really made it difficult. It was still really good. And it's like anything, the perception of the game back then started to, to really taper. But I don't think it ever was as bad as what the perception was. And it was probably never as good as what the perception was when it was in the so-called uh, great days. But uh, I think that fortunately, probably eight years ago, nine years ago, some of the t- there was some uh, rationalisation of the the NBL teams and um, the ownership model came in. They put in place some more sustainable practices and and as such, it's rebounded. And now the game has has never been as healthy. But you're absolutely right. It was it was a a thrill to be there and have people like you coming along the games and admiring and and getting involved in the trading cards and all those things that you equate to a successful sport. And then um, then it, it absolutely definitely tapered. I don't think it went as bad as what a lot of people think, but it tapered and um, and there's a, a variety of explanations that different people will have for why that was the case. The decision for me uh, around the, the changing of, of the name of Melbourne Tigers to, to United, I don't know where that sits with you. I can imagine it. I, I don't know, but I can imagine it wouldn't be great just because of the history of yeah. the, the club and I suppose how big they actually were at that time. Where did that come from? Was that just like a rebrand to be like, we need to spice things up a little bit or was it? Yeah, well, there was, I think there are a number of reasons and uh, the owner of the league, Larry Kesselman, um, and his partner were shareholders in the Melbourne Tigers. And the Melbourne Tigers, they were facing as most clubs were facing some difficult financial challenges, which they'd had throughout their history, but always found a way to figure it out. And there was a, a belief that because the Melbourne Tigers had a affiliations with juniors, so you could, I played for the Melbourne Tigers since under 12s all the way through to the seniors. And because of that affiliation with the juniors, they part of the, Rationale for for the decision was that it felt it was alienating a lot of the participants that had to go and play against the Melbourne Tigers. So there was a theory that all the all those players that competed against the Melbourne Tigers, well, you can never get them as fans of the Melbourne Tigers because you know they're they're rivals when they they're playing against them. And um, Larry uh, then got a majority of the shareholders to to make this change and and he was the one that was financing it he was the one that was investing in it and he made that decision to 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 make the change so 
yeah, it was disappointing. I, I understand it. I understand why he did it. I don't, as I've communicated with him all along, I, I don't agree with it, but um, but I wasn't the one writing out the checks. Yep. Um, so, um, you know, he, he made that decision, and I think by his judgment and by many that, that it was the right decision to make. I, I personally don't think that it, it would have been any different uh, going on and continue to grow and, and, and keep the Melbourne Tigers brand as it was. But, um, but yeah, I, 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 it, w- it was hurtful for a, for a little while, but like everything, you move on, you understand the, the club is still there. You know, you still got your juniors, junior girls. There is a senior program all at the, the NBL 1, the, the level below, and it continues to, to be part of the, the basketball fraternity. So it's not like we've lost our club altogether. Um, but yeah, it, it is disappointing that it's it, that it was no longer and is no longer part of the NBL at the highest level. I think uh, on a very very minor level that it has no relevance to to that at all. But one thing that is big and and I think that they might have missed on this, and this might be me the only reason that I think it is. But the history with that and having the Tigers and how big it was in the nineties. You don't know how hard it is to get some Melbourne Tigers vintage clothing <laughs> and, and how much that stuff is worth to get. And I think like it, just on the team and having that, that sort of love of vintage um, yeah. Australian sport, it would still have a bit more of a love there. And I, I don't feel personally to me, I'm as attached as Melbourne United as what I am with the Tigers. But again, I'm still going to be uh, getting around them um, for sure. Well, these days we're lucky. You've got, you got the choices. You've got, the ti- you've got um, Melbourne United, you've got the Phoenix. And um, as a basketball fan, I still think there's room for, for more teams. But, you know, at least you've got, at least there is a sport. It's vibrant. I love it. The standard of the competition is great. Melbourne Tigers has a home in the NBL one competition. So it's at the end of the day, it's, it's, um, there's some challenges out there for all, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's found its way and it, it's, it's, the outcomes have been pretty good. Is the NBL, am I wrong to say that could be the, the second biggest comp in, in the world is, could it get to that stage? Do you think it's going to get there? Like we've had LaMelo ball, we've had Josh Kitty. Um, recently, there's probably been a few others that I'm not aware of, but it, it feels like it's going to really become a feeder to the NBA and, and actually be taken serious by the US. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it is taken it's incredibly serious by the, the United States right now. Um, and I guess the, the marquee and, and the shop front of that has been, like you say, LaMelo Ball, the number three pick, Josh Giddy just there. RJ Hampton, who played with New Zealand, was a, a first-round pick as well so there has been another a number of those come through at a very young age that are using the NBL as a, a pathway to the NBA and I think that uh, on a standard base basis right now it is right up there the Euro League uh, is probably regarded as a little greater depth of competition but our best teams can compete with the best teams in the Euro League it's just that they've got more of them um, so uh, right now though because of the conditions that is the facilities we play with in you know living in a country like Australia um, the training the coaching because of those uh, as good as anywhere in the world uh, a lot of players are coming to Australia now and even this next upcoming season there's a uh, a couple of Europe young European players that have decided not to stay in Europe but to come to NBL teams in order to give themselves a better chance there's a seven foot three 
Filipino kid that has been in the States. He's come back. He's going to play with the Adelaide 36ers because of the, the coaching and the reputation that our league has. So we are really, really lucky here that um, we've, we've been able to put in place a competition that can develop talent and it's somewhere where people want to come and, and it is absolutely highly regarded by the um, NBA and it's not just with the players. Will Weaver came from the United States, coached the Sydney Kings for one year and is now a lead assistant with the Houston Rockets. Um, and, and there is uh, Trevor Gleeson, who was, did a phenomenal job over the last 10 or so years with the Perth Wildcats. has just been signed by the Toronto Raptors as a lead assistant over there. Uh, so, so, yeah, this, this league is being embraced by the NBA and it's great for us because we get to see this talent coming here and, and playing and, and helping in them in their pathway to the NBA. One thing I think it, um, the public might not even be aware of as, as much as well, but inside the, the AFL, how many high-performance managers and um, dietitians, all these sorts of statisticians around um, high-performance are actually have been targeted by US sports to go and run the programs in the US. Like, you know, each year I was yeah. in the club, it nearly was more and more coaches um, were getting targeted by teams, one being Johan Billsborough, who worked with the Celtics and um, over in the States in the NBA and, and, and plenty more that, that have gone. It's actually crazy how And much, the NFL too, by the way. And the yeah, NFL, yeah. Yeah, which is crazy for them. So it does show that we are doing some seriously good things um, in Australia. It's exciting. Oh, we, we are world leaders when it comes to sports science and um, best world's best practice with in a lot of elements of elite level performance. So, and and I think that is in part due to the resources we've allocated over the years. The Australian Institute of Sport was a big part of that in not only cultivating the athletes but cultivating the sports science as well. So, yeah, you're spot on. We, we've, we're we're punching well above our uh, uh, weight in, in regards to um, things outside of just the, the, the players. I, I have heard as well, and I'm not sure if you'd, I'm sure you would, but to, to dob anyone in, but the, apparently in the NBA and in the NFL in these situations, these high performance managers are actually going over going, oh my God, these guys and girls are the most incredible athletes you've ever seen, but probably some of the most unprofessional athletes in the world. Like they actually don't train to the standard that you think they do. And I know they play a lot more games than what we do in football yep. and, and the basketball terms are a lot shorter turnarounds, but they're actually so surprised at how some of these players are actually getting through games. Now, I'm speaking of ones that wouldn't be the LeBron Jameses and the, the, the highest of the competition, but it's pretty incredible to think that, again, you've, we've mentioned it, but Australian world leaders are, uh, in, in high performance are going over and teaching them things about how to get better. Yeah, and you, and you know what? A lot of it comes back to the culture of the organisation and prioritising those things. Um, I think some of them would go in there and, and you know, trying to get elite athletes that are playing 82 games a season, right out, you've just played 30 minutes, so jump in this ice bath. I mean, they'd look at you in, in weird ways and think that you, you know, that you've lost your mind completely um but that like you say that that is changing but yeah I, I think that there are still elements of um the athletes just saying well just let me do my thing this is what i do and and it's taken a while i think for some of them to get an appreciation of how helpful that stuff can be to your performance 
Now, as you say, the, the uber elite, the LeBron James, James, apparently with his diet, his personal training, a sports psychologist, and this is, I'm not talking about the team, I'm talking about him personally. Yeah. He spends, now he can afford it, but he has a, a bill of something like one, one point million dollars a year on those things alone. So there are certainly some that really dedicate themselves and put the resources into that part of their their um, well-being that allows them to, to to be elite. But but you're right. I still think that I I haven't been that close to it recently. Um, done some things when I was coaching the Kings a few years ago where I saw some of it. That there are still some elements that I look at and, geez, and think, geez, we're doing a hell of a lot more here than what they are over there. So, but, but I think it is, it is changing because, like everything, you see you get an education on how you can perform to a higher level and you've got you to keep up. Hey, Gazy, I want to talk about your career, mate, because it's, uh, it's pretty unbelievable. And when I say pretty, it is, it is very incredible what you've been able to achieve um, I, I will be honest, though, going through your history of years by teams, it, it is nearly like the Da Vinci Code trying to track where <laughs> you have been over a certain period of time. It, it's, it's crazy because it's, it's so hard to like understand that the years, like, for example, going through, you're in Australia, to start with, went over to Italy, went to the US, back to Australia, to Greece, to US, to Australia again. How crazy was that time period of your life, at like moving around, being in different teams, dealing with different languages, just to try and get to the top? Yeah, it was it was fun. You know, I loved it. I loved the opportunity to see different parts of the world and learn different things. And uh, I, I played for my dad for the vast majority of my career. And, and it's those times with the Boomers or, or playing college basketball with PJ Calissimo or going and playing in Italy and Greece and, and, and getting those different experiences on, on different ways in which you can uh, pick up things and learn the game. And it was, you know, yeah, it's you, you're going there for financial reasons as well, but it's also about uh, getting an education and broadening your, your own experience to become better and constantly trying to improve yourself. So it's, I think one of the beauties of the game is that it provides these opportunities and the guys these days do way more than what I do. Some of these guys are, are going and each year they're, they're in a different country in Europe and uh, now Asia is huge as well with China, the resources they ha- they dedicate to their sport. Um, it it's, provides these incredible opportunities. But uh, the underlying thing for me through all that was that um, trying to play and win a gold medal for Australia at the Olympic Games. When I went to University of Seton Hall for the 88-89 season, they actually started recruiting me in 1986. So, and I didn't want to go because I felt that it was going to impact my a chance to, I'd been to Los Angeles in 84, uh, impact my chance to be part of the 1988 Seoul Olympic Games. And it was only because of the timing of the Seoul Olympic Games that it opened up this window in the Australian schedule that I thought, well, I'm just going to be sitting at home during the summer here. There's this new window of opportunity. Seton Hall was still keen to have me there. So I, I, I went and uh, played with Seton Hall and thank God I did because I got the chance to be a part of this incredible team that went to the championship game. Lost to Michigan in overtime, by the way, in one of the most horrific officiating decisions in the history of the sport. But let's not get into that. Uh, but still, it was, um, it was one of those 
moments that uh, just the timing of it worked out because it didn't interfere with my goals of, of wanting to play for Australia. And the same thing when I went to Greece or when I went to Italy, um, it, 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 they never interfered. Uh, and then the timing and part of the decision making was about wanting to, to continue to try and strive for this boyhood dream of winning a medal in the Olympics. So fantastic opportunities and I'm incredibly grateful to them all. But uh, the underlying thing or, or motivation behind all that was playing for Australia. Yeah, it's extremely honourable. And as an, as an Australian, it makes me super proud to, to hear that. And I'm sure it does for everyone else. But I, I'm really interested in the fact of when you were, you were in Italy um, and in the US, I look back when I was a young bloke and, and rocking up to a footy club, I just had absolutely no fucking idea yeah. what I was doing. Yeah. Like I was, honestly, if I could go back now, I, I would look at half the people and they would have been like, what is this bloke doing? Like he, he has absolutely no idea what's going on. What were some of those like key learnings that you learnt from those experiences that held you in the best stead to then go play with the Olympics? And even later in life, because I know the biggest lessons I've learned in life are from footy, but I've sort of taken them into business and the rest of my life as well. Yeah. Now, well, for me, I think that the biggest challenges were when I was in Italy and in Greece, because I didn't speak the language. And the first coach I had in Italy, he didn't speak any English. And the, and the, the lessons that I think were so helpful for me was making Italian sure... Italian lessons? Well, Italian lessons is one I didn't do so well on that. That's another story. But was making sure that you are adaptable. You go into sometimes these situations with a preconceived idea of how you think it, it should be and how you want it to be. And you go in there and it is completely hard to fathom. Cultural differences, language problems, all those things. And I learned really quickly that if you go in there and try to make this an Australian version playing in Italy or playing in Greece, it was going to have some challenges. And to be really open-minded about taking in new information and accepting there are different ways to do things and trying to um, adapt to what they wanted me to do rather than having them adapt to me and what I wanted to do. And fitting in with guys that communication is 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 really, really difficult. So all those things uh, were, the, were the biggest uh, learning points about that, along with just life experiences and living in a foreign country. But from a, from a situation where you're taking some concepts you learn from there, they are still applicable when you come back and you're here and you're facing different challenges, either be in sport, with life in general, with your family, or in business, whatever it may be. You take those lessons from that and try and understand that the key to success and the common denominators of a successful program is making sure you create an atmosphere of greatness. Now, that sounds like a motherhood statement and saying, well, that's something, you, you know, but there is some substance to it. And through all those experiences that you understand that success happens in a particular environment, an atmosphere where there is uh, this, uh, in a team sport anyway, where there's this cooperation where you 
respect is a big part of it. And you're also in this real fun, positive situations where of course you're going to have conflicts, but there is conflict resolution that doesn't damage relationships. And you know, it's like I said, it's a bit of a motherhood statement, but there is an atmosphere of greatness that allows the individuals to perform at a, uh, a level which they're trained for. And that level may not end in a championship, but it's a level in which that you can reach your potential, whatever that potential may be. So uh, they are, that is probably the biggest lesson that I learned uh, in a strange, for me at a time, strange environment and how you can test yourself to see how adaptable you can be. Is that the biggest lesson as well? Does that correlate with Greg Popovich with the Spurs? You know, you're in the roster with them. Yeah. Um, regarded as one of the best coaches of all time. Is that what you learnt from him under his guard and then obviously taking that into your own coaching career later in, yeah. in life? Well, he was different again. He was different in that, again, you have this perception about, well, what's it like? You've got these multi-squillionaire players mm. um, and it's a very player-dominated industry uh, but going into that situation with the Spurs, boy, it was, he was the leader and he was setting the standards and he was holding people accountable like no other, in a very demonstrative way. Uh, and that, in a, in a professional environment, is not all that common, just because the sheer power that players have because of the um, contractual commitments that an organization has to the players it's a hell of a lot easier to get rid of one coach than it is to get rid of four or five players um and usually the coaches will understand that and be a little bit more accommodating but in this situation with the spurs he was pop was say this is how it's going to be and i'm going to hold you accountable to the path that we're going in a very firm and non-compromising way. And at the time I thought, geez, how does this work? And the only way that worked was because our leaders, Tim Duncan, uh, David Robinson, uh, Sean Elliott, Avery Johnson were 100% they'd bought in. They flinch. They, hey, screw you, Pop. Don't do, you know, don't do that. Don't talk to me like that. Any of that happens, that thing fractures and it's, you don't get the outcomes of an NBA championship. But because you had Pop who develops these relationships outside of just what he do, does in that coaching environment and he gets an understanding of the individuals, he gets that buy-in by the players and if those four guys buy in, everyone else is buying in because they're the superstars, they are the leaders and it, it has a rippling effect right throughout the entire group. So it was completely different again to what I thought it was going to be and one that I learned a lot from and saying, well, you stick to your principles. Uh, there is no shame in coaching players and holding them accountable and you can be very direct. Now it worked out for him it doesn't work out like that way for everyone, but um, but certainly 
that was a different style than what I was accustomed to with my dad in particular uh, and was more in tune to the type of approach that my college coach, PJ Calissimo, took. This could be a podcast in itself, this question, but the shortest possible answer to this in your coaching and all the coaches that you had and the way you coach yourself and something that I'm really interested in because I still don't know the answer to is what's more important in a coach? Is it coaching the team or is it coaching the game plan? Well, that is a big, big... uh, I think there's, there's no right or wrong way and it's all about balance. You have to do both. You can't do one or the other. And sometimes people get... They're too far skewed one way and not the other, mm. and, and and that doesn't always. And that's that's the, I think the art of coaching is figuring out your group, figuring out the personalities of the group, and then understanding where the, how that balance lies, and and that's not always easy, um, and particularly in larger teams like basketball or, or, or AFL, uh, where you're dealing with a whole bunch of of, of personalities. I think that to me. I probably erred more on coaching the strategy more so than it is than it was coaching the relationships and the team and I think it, when I reflected back on my time as coaching I think I didn't quite get the balance right all the time but um, you, you, it's, it's, it was one of those hypotheticals you never really know mm. until uh, you either win a championship or you don't and yep. you reassess it and you figure out, well, if I had my time over again, I probably would have done this a little bit more and a little less of this, and then you, you, you figure it out. But, um, you know, it, it, strategy is not easy to coach as well because these days when you're coaching strategy, um, your game plan, the system, you want to put all those things in place. But again, involved in that is figuring out the balance between individual personal Training as opposed to team concept training, and that is that's another area you've got to find the balance with. So there's all those things that, that go along. Like you say, it's I think it's even more than a podcast yeah, in it's itself. It's a season. It's a it's season. A, it's a whole season to figure it, it out. Um, and and different methods and and clearly different methods work uh, differently with different groups. No, you're right. It's, it's, it's massive. And I think a big thing in the AFL at the moment is looking at some of the greatest coaches we've had and, and not cutting them short at all, but knowing the fact that even if it's worked for, put Clarkson, for example, even though that's worked for Clarkson and he went to coach another team, he wouldn't bring the same game style and same things that he's done at Hawthorne because it wouldn't work at another team. You've got to coach that team with their players. It's a different culture. Um, but again, they know a lot more than about that than me. But it's it's definitely in your wheelhouse where you could have some some big impact. You might put on the um, the board to to help out. I think. <laughs> that's, well, that's, <laughs> no, well, that's it. And, and you're right. I think that even from year to year with the same team, different. you're going to have different approaches because of the different personalities that come into the group and how you're going to extract it. But intertwined in all of that, though, when you're talking about your culture, there are certainly some non-negotiables that you, regardless of where your priorities may lie, I think are important. Certain uh, standards of behaviour that need to be in place, irregardless of anything else. There are always going to be some non-negotiables that you have to uphold, and, and sometimes it's difficult to do that because, 
certain people, we're not all equal in a team, despite what we try to do. No. That you've got to uh, sometimes uh, find a way to use those standards and apply them in a way that seem to be fair and equitable amongst all, albeit that you're dealing with different personalities that may need to be treated differently. Yeah, it's a job. It's a tough one. It's definitely not one I'm putting my hand up for. Um, we speak about the, the different personalities in basketball and, and something that I'm big in with this. I, I'd love to know if there's anything that stands out to you where, with your time in the US or overseas playing basketball, what were some of the ridiculous scenes that you saw of these guys on big pay packets rocking up in X amount of cars, spending money on X amount of things? Was there, was there any like moments that stick out to you and you just go, well, what? Like what is going on right now? Oh man, in, in the NBA, it's 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 on another level. And when you've got uh, relatively young people with enormous resources, I mean obscene levels of resources, you, you, some of the decisions that they make, you're thinking, my glory filled days. What <laughs> would ever inspire you to do that? But when you, I guess, when you've got that much money, it's it's the case. But I guess um, more so, and it was actually with a conversation that I had with um, Luke Longley that, and it's it, they touched on a little bit in the last dance. And I remember with him, he was doing some. Um, he was a mentor for the uh, Fremantle Dockers, and he brought ten players down to Victoria, and he was going through a leadership type program with him and he asked me to come along and chat and he was also chatting as well talking about leadership and he spoke about um, Dennis Rodman who was a weird cat and about how you don't you're sometimes making decisions about what is in someone's best interest that is not that, that is specific to the individual and he spoke about a time when they're in the NBA playoffs and they, uh, Dennis was going through some tough times and they're in playing Utah, Mormon, you know, predominantly a Mormon community, can't, nothing open after 10, can't drink. And, 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 and Dennis Rodman is in a bit of a funk on the court and their leadership group, which obviously included Michael and that, and the coach, Phil Jackson, decided that it was in Dennis's and the team's best interest to send him to Vegas for two or three days so he can let off steam and do what Dennis does. And this is in the middle of a NBA championship uh, series that they make a decision that we've got this weird, this cat that's a little different. They love him to death, but no, no, he's better off going to titty bars and staying out all night and doing his thing and, and letting off his steam to get him back into our team so he can perform better. Now, when Luke told me that story, it sort of makes it hard when you're trying to develop a leadership program, but this is these are the nuances that you need when you're involved with a, a group and you're trying to get the best outcomes. Obviously, you don't want to be out there doing anything untoward or illegal, and certainly that's not what Dennis was doing and that's not what they were encouraging to do, but they were told him to behave and do things that was not stereotypically what you think is the best preparation 
for an NBA Finals Championship game that was coming up. So those types of things highlight how you've got to be prepared to be a little flexible in the way in which you, you're going to provide guidance to some of your players. Unbelievable. It, yeah, to, to think about that is, is... Could you imagine in your footy days... <laughs> Well, look, I'll tell you what, Gazy, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been one of the players getting that treatment. I don't think they would have even known who I was. But I can, <laughs> I can say that, that there, is, there has been times, and that comes back to the, the, another coaching philosophy, is like, you, do you coach a team or do you coach individuals? And I think mm. you do have to coach individuals because not everyone responds to the same thing. And there has been definite times, especially when I've been playing, where certain individuals have gotten away with certain things because we are all different. Um, is it right? Is it wrong? I don't know. Yeah. It's, a, it's a tough one. Hey, one that I don't want to butcher this story and it's, it's yours to tell, but after the, the Spurs um, championship, you returned back to Australia and I don't know how it worked, but I think the postman might have left something in your letterbox to say there was something to pick up at the postbox. Can you, can you tell us this story? Well, this is, this is the, 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 um, the beauty of being in, with an NBA team and how they uh, embrace everyone was there. And David Robertson is a legend. Is of the game, and um, he was one of our leaders. And I'd come home, and you know, I'd had two fifths of stuff all to do with the championship. I was just absolutely privileged to be there. But but my role was the closest you'll get to irrelevant in any sporting organisation. So, but very proud and privileged to be a part of it. And I was home, been home a few weeks, and. You know, you get the envelope, the, the, the slip in the letterbox. Oh, there's a package for you to go pick up. So, oh, yeah, you got the package. So I walk up the post office and I present the, the little ticket to get the, the package. And they came back and they said, um, yeah, you've got a package here, but uh, it's gonna, you're going to have to pay $700 in order to get the package. And I was like, $700? What, what are you... T- can you... What is it? And he said, "Well, we can't. We can't give you the package until you yeah. paid the seven hundred dollars." And I said, "Well, but how do I know what I'm, what it's for?" What? A... So anyway, they. Um, I said, "Can you go and find out who it's from?" So they go back and there. Yeah, it's from a Mr. David Robinson. Has sent. It's in a. It's in a box, and in the box, it's just marked on it, jewelry. And because it's jewellery, in order the, the value of whatever's in there, you've got to pay the duty of seven hundred bucks. And at the time, I thought, Shh, I don't want to pay the seven hundred, <laughs> but this is David Robinson, so I don't want him. I don't want to be sent back to him because he'd think I'm an ungrateful, disrespectful dude. So I thought, I thought about. It. I didn't even do it then. Come home, I said, I'm gonna to have to pay the seven hundred bucks. So I went back the next day. And I, I paid the 700 or 700 whatever it was, and I got it and uh, opened it up. And in it was this, um, was a watch. And on the, the back of the watch, it was, um, Andrew, thanks for a great season. Um, Spurs, 99 champs, Dave Robin, engraved on the uh, back of it. And apparently it was this some... Um, Ebel was the name. I think Ebel is the brand name. Some super duper, and he did that for all the players and all the coaches. He 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 provided this gift for for all the all the players. So it was a little 
Thank God I pay for it. Lucky, I imagine if I ever just <laughs> said, mate, do you mind picking up the $700 tax bill? <laughs> that wouldn't have gone down well at all. Oh, yeah. Are we comfortable in, in sharing what we think that might be worth now? Oh, i got no idea. I put it in, I, I've never worn it. I put it in the trophy cabinet, such as wow. uh, that, and along with my uh, the, the championship ring that I was presented with as well. Uh, I never wore it. They, they just sit in the trophy cabinet and they're mementos of just this incredible opportunity and experience that I, I got to, to live through. I dare say they'd buy a fair few pairs of gazes from Big W. Oh, mate, you should see these yeah, these championship rings. They, they, they're they huge and there's diamonds all i got no idea... I can't imagine you rocking that, to be honest. No, no, I couldn't yeah. pull that off. Yeah. I could not pull that off. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's it's one of those ones where I feel a bit embarrassed because I was there and, and like I said, my role was virtually insignificant. So it's not something that I look... I look back on it more as this incredible experience as a, a life experience more than yeah. a... And, and it was a great basketball experience because of training and being around those guys. But as far as a contribution to a to the championship, it was virtually nothing really oh look I think you're cutting yourself very very short there mate and um, and when you're cutting yourself short there you're actually cutting me short too because I'd like to think that I had a massive role in uh, everything that I've been a part of and uh, <laughs> I, I, I sure tell everyone that I played a way bigger role than I did so on behalf of both of us let's start pumping ourselves up a little bit more no, happy to happy to go. No, but it's it's true. I, I um, you do have a role, and and you've got to whatever that role is, you've got to do it to your best of your abilities, and all those little pieces do come together. So I guess we can, we can justify it in a way that um, that is important. And I know for a fact that I know, and it's funny that I feel that way because I know when I look back on our NBL championships, and, and I remember a lot of those guys that were on our roster that. We're playing but not playing a lot or in some cases playing very little. I still look back on that and understand that, that, that they were there pushing us every day of practice. They were there. They were um, providing the, the moral support. All those things do, do have, play a very significant role. And, and just to share something on that, and I, I don't think I've really said this publicly, but I did uh, have a big chat with a few of my teammates you know, in, uh, from, from Giants when they did make the, the premiership and... And even though I wasn't a part of the game and I never was going to get selected for that game, and even in my head it was never there, but to chat to a few of the teammates and they sort of said to me when I finished up my career how much, and I don't know if they were just pissing in my pocket telling me this, but no, they're not. It, it, was, it was how much, even though I was there, how much I pushed them because they were scared of losing their position. And you, 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 you would have done that exactly to those players being like, well, fuck, this guy's come here from Australia. He's not here to fuck around. That's um, it. We need, to, we need to get there to do it. So let's definitely pump ourselves up. And it's for, for all those people out there that do it, you, you've played a massive role. Well, you know, here, here's the thing. When they were recruiting me, because I was older at that stage, uh, a lot older, 30, you know, and um, Pop and R.C. Buford, they were brutally honest when they recruited me. They said, Andrew, we think you can play. You can play at this level. And But given the way our roster and we hope our roster is going to be made up, you're going to be part of this 15-man squad and we believe you are going to be the greatest insurance policy a team can have. Mm. In that, yeah, this is, this is how we think. And you'll have the opportunity to compete for roles and compete for time, but... This is the reality of the list we're trying to put together. And if you're not comfortable with this, then this is not right for you. 
Um, so it was not... I went into that with absolutely eyes wide open. And when you know that, you go there and it helps deal with those competitive instincts that you have that you want to try and contribute. But but when it's communicated to you and you, you're working out and you, you still... Um, feel like you're contributing in other ways it's 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 much easier to accept than if your role and the communication is a little bit wishy-washy yep. then that can lead to a bit of resentment i had the exact same conversation with leon when i signed there it was he was never guaranteeing me to be the captain of the team nor should he have just been <laughs> delisted but it was literally there to come there and have an opportunity to be that 23rd 24th player to push um others and you know i was i was fully aboard that and you're right, those two coaches that do send those messages are the best ones. Hey, I touched on this earlier and again, would love to have a chat to you about this. And, and it's something that I really admire about yourself um, is your, your presence, your, your authenticity, your infectious personality, um, the person you are. I think for me, you know, that's something that I really try and like model myself on as I've gotten older. But it, oh, it definitely wasn't, it, it, it definitely didn't come natural. Like, I don't think that I've had this outlook on life, like my whole life, like there's been certain things that, you know, you go through to try and become a better person or think about things in a different way. Yeah. Was it always like that for you? Like, have you, was it, does anything stand out to, to you to, to have got to where you are now with your outlook on life? I think so. I think despite the um, perception that a lot of people have about me, uh, a lot of people wouldn't be aware that my childhood was very humble you know you know i'm not trying to make it something that it's not we 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 always had food on the table but it wasn't as if you know we had all the resources in the world i was privileged because of the environment that i was growing up in not necessarily because of the resources that were available to me um and as such i think you know you you go through and I was growing up with in, in um, public education systems that weren't surrounded with the privilege. And you get a, an appreciation and a, a bit of perspective that I think resonated with me. And I think because of that, you just have, you're able to establish um, gratitude for everything that comes your way and understanding and seeing firsthand that hand that that as tough as times may get, you're still very privileged. And again, it gets back to what I sounded talking about before. It sounds like ah, oh, well, this is just motherhood, you know. But it's unfortunate. It's the reality. And I think that that those that that don't get exposure or an appreciation for those things, I think, then um, have different expectations. And for me, I always felt that I was incredibly lucky, incredibly blessed, and not being, not being uh, an example of humility or, or trying to be something that I'm not, I honestly look in the mirror and think that I have been rewarded way more than I was entitled to. I feel that there is been things blessed that, that have blessed me that just incredibly lucky and fortunate and yeah of course you've got to work hard for, for, for things but there's a lot of people that work really really hard that don't get the same breaks and because of that I have a strong sense of 
of um, compassion and also gratitude that I am not entitled in any way, shape or form to be disappointed, upset with whatever life dishes me because it's given me more than I probably deserve. So uh, on that's, that's probably the basis of satisfying my conscience and being able to feel good about myself is understanding that, mate, yeah, you're going through a tough spell here, but please make sure you always keep it in perspective and having something very tangible to think back on helps in that outlook. Uh, like everything, you everyone has bad days, but, um, you know, the thing that my parents in, absolutely insisted and instilled in me was making sure that you are absolutely no better than anyone else and you make sure that no matter what someone else has done, come from, or whatever, there's an element of respect that everyone deserves. And as such, that that's how you carry yourself and then others will judge you on whether they like what you do or don't like what you do. And there's still plenty out there that for whatever reason will see some of the things you do and and may, may not think that it's all that good. But, um, but I think he's sort of summarising how or why you have a personality like, you, like I do is just reflecting back on that. And as I said, it's just when they, those things are instilled in you at an early age, you, don't, you can't act it. You can't act your way through life. It's just what you are and others will make their judgments. And fortunately, a bloke like you at this point in time uh, thinks it's okay, which is good, and I and I'm honoured that that you have that perception of me. Yeah, I, I don't think I can add anything more to that. That was that was pretty phenomenal. I, I love the fact of just thinking you're the luckiest person in the world, and if you're the luckiest, I'm I'm the second luckiest because I do genuinely feel like I've been blessed with with a lot of things as well, and it, it must be. I don't know. We talk about gratitude. A lot of these quotes and everything they all form into one. But just yep. yeah, being being lucky for where we are and especially in a time like this of COVID and all the bad things going in the world to be able to find a positive in any situation um, is, is definitely there. So no, mate, I I couldn't agree more and I can't thank you enough for for sharing that. No, no. And you know, that just on that, because it's something that uh, intertwined in in what I was saying is that um, through sport, uh, one of the things, and again, it's probably, from my parents that this came is that when you have those setbacks how in which you deal with those setbacks can shape how the future will become so uh somehow or other my dad was able to uh encourage me to look at this a setback as or a difficult set of circumstances as a challenge and it's this beautiful opportunity to test yourself to see how you respond to those challenges and um, do you take an easy route and try and avoid or do you look it in the eye and embrace it now it's hard right now if someone's lost their job because of COVID they're, they're you know not sure where their next pay package coming from and struggling to put food on the table and just those real extreme situations but um, the ability to 
try and be pragmatic and use take that as a challenge that there is this belief that on the other side of it, I'm going to be better for off for going through this than um, walking away from it. That the ultimate outcome of this really bad set of circumstances is that if I can find a way to continually strive to get through it, the reward at the other side is going to be way better than if you hadn't had it. So sometimes you almost like you almost feel like you're a masochist and say, well. Give me, si- yeah, give, give me a bad, give me a bad situation because I know the outcome when you get to that other side is going to be more powerful than than what it would if you haven't been through it. Gazy, I'm about to run through a brick wall. I, I, kid you not. <laughs> no, I, I, I was no, I was no, driving home last no. night and I was literally thinking this exact situation. You might, you know, you always get in your own head and you yeah. think, Fuck, you know, I've just been through this and and I got through it and, and now I'm going through this and I was literally thinking like. Fuck, in my own mind, I'm, I'm growing up, I'm becoming more resilient. But the funny thing is the situations don't actually get easier to deal with. You just believe in yourself more that you can get through it. Yeah, and that's, that's probably it. the biggest part that I've realised now. It's, it's not like um, bad situations get easier. They're, they're still shit. Like, they're course. still absolutely terrible and they don't get any easier. But you just know, well, fuck, I got through last time. I've got through this situation. I got through this. You know, I've... My best mates got through this, and you just draw on different things, and and it's not that's not it's it's not meant to be. I'm just trying to explain. No, it is. How, yeah, how it is. I I do um how you, you you front those circumstances, and geez, you go to some really really dark places sometimes, and just that little thing in the head that says, mate, oh, maybe I'm because I'm I'm stubborn and pig headed. You, you, you feel like, nah, this son of a bitch is not going to beat me. I could keep talking about this all day, but I, yeah, I, I think every situation, and you'd probably agree, every situation that I've looked at initially and thought, shit, that this sucks and this is a bad situation, just end up being the, the biggest blessing um, I've ever had. So anyway, that's it. Um, Good man. To, to, to finish up, Gazy, I can't um, go on by asking you the most serious question of all time, and this, this one is deeper than anything we have today oh but dear. to go on this this has been probably the most universally wanted to know from the goat of australian basketball who is the goat of basketball in your opinion you got kobe lebron or jordan or someone else um everyone wants to know your answer yeah well for me it's it's a real easy one it's because uh it's my boyhood hero and the one that i think has had the most profound impact on the game is, is michael jordan and I will say this, though, in the last four or five seasons, the gap between LeBron and Kobe with where I would put Michael Jordan is, um, is a lot smaller than it once was. Uh, but I still think that, that his impact on the game, the era that he, that he played in, uh, the way in which he transformed the game um, and changed the game not just in the United States and the NBA but right throughout the world is something that um, I, I don't think we've seen and I don't like really I love them all you know and mm. I, I respect them all and um, I don't like making those com- those comparisons but uh, for me and it's a, it's a personal attachment of when I was coming through and maybe if I was playing in the same time as LeBron then I would have a different view. But uh, Jordan, to me, is the, the greatest of all time. 
And lastly, I, I said that was the last one. This is definitely the last one. Favourite um, present-day player in the NBA and maybe a couple to watch that you think could be really pressing from Australia to, to make there in the next couple of seasons? Well, the, the, the second question's easy. You've you got to keep an eye on Josh Giddy. He was the number six pick in the, this year's NBA draft. He's gone to – he was drafted by OKC – and I'm biased because I played with his dad and I coached Giddy throughout a, a chunk of his junior career. And I think he has the potential to be a Luka Doncic type. And Doncic right now, he just signed a max deal of 250 million or something for five so years. Um, so he, he's not looking for his, his next pay packet. But he um, he's a star, Doncic. And I see a lot of those characteristics in Josh Giddy as I do in, in, in Luka Doncic. Um, as far as the, the players right now, uh, I still hang on to LeBron. I've got incredible admiration for his desire to compete. Um, yeah, there's some quirky things along the way that hasn't always sit well with me with some of the things that he's done. But a guy that's continually strived to, to, to get better and um, the way in which his game has evolved. He started out as a poor perimeter shooter. He's a really good perimeter shooter right now. The three ball has become an integral part of his game. And just the way in which he maintains that high level of motivation after so many years. I think, what is he, 36 this year? 35, 36, can't remember exactly. Uh, But for him to and started when he was 18. So more than half of his life has been in the NBA. And for him to still have that uh, fun element and that drive and that killer instinct about the way he plays, that uh, if you talk, if you, you know, you're asking me who I like to watch or what I want to do, you know, how I do it, then, then he'd, be, he'd be one of them. The other one that is a freak, and it's almost like a video game when you watch him, is Steph Curry. Yep. I mean, this guy, I don't... We, we kind of take for granted some of the shots that he takes and consistently makes. It is outrageous what he, he does. So he does it in a different way, but he's another one that, um, gee, I, I love to watch him and I love to watch the way the Warriors play and, and how he fits into that system. And just the, the from sheer shooting, he is something that I'm in awe of that the the consistency in the way that he he can uh, shoot the ball yeah well I've still got to pick a team I think I'm going to jump on the Josh Giddy bandwagon that hard it's not funny yes. um, so okay so you just bought a membership as we're speaking um it'll be <laughs> yeah. great hey Gazy, honestly cannot thank you enough for your time mate it's it's been unbelievable um if you're inside in basketball just having a chat with you and and um all your life lessons and, and everything mate no it's just honestly been incredible to sit down i do want to get a pair of um i'm definitely going to take no, you no, up no, on the offer I'm of get, some gazes what, what size are, are you what size, I'm size are you? uh nine bit of a piss ant um I gotcha. but we and i, I want to get um if you're happy we'll maybe get a signed pair for a giveaway we can give no away problem. to the, well, the crowd well you do you do your um however you want to give it away and then find out the person you tell me their size and then I'll, I'll, I'll sign they may not want the, I'll sign the box and uh, no, if they, they want the shoe signed they'll do that
And the last one is I want you to get down to the attic as well. If there's a, if there's a vintage Gazy training T-shirt, I want to hang that up in the studio as well. So if you can... <laughs> Here's the thing. My, um, uh, my kids, my youngest... Oh, yeah, they won't son, want to give them away. No, my son and my, my daughters, all of a sudden, all this stuff that they've put shit on me for years for hoarding... They've come out, and now it's like, they're like you, Dad, this is great, this is great. And I'm saying, no, no, no I've kept this for, for, <laughs> for sentimental reasons, and they actually want to wear it. And, and I said, but I'm not sure if you put this through the wash, it might fall to bits, but they've got a whole bunch of that stuff. So we'll try, I'll see if I can find something in there that um, that is there for you, that we can, uh, and I can hang up on your in your uh, garage or wherever it may be. Mate, I'll shrine, put a shrine there for you to so that the, the fans <laughs> can come. Thank you so much for your time, mate. I really You're appreciate it. You're a good man. I appreciate it. Good on you, Dylan. If that wasn't enough for you and you want even more, you're in luck. Dylan Friends is now on Patreon. Dylan Best Friends. An exclusive loyalty subscription featuring the debrief podcast of each episode and bonus Q&As from Patreon members like this. This one's Jimmy Hooter Thunk at Plunkett. He wants to know what was it like being the Australian flag bearer um, at the Olympics when it was when it was your turn to go around. Must have been pretty special. Uh, the greatest honour I think an Australian athlete can have to be... Um Considered worthy because when you're the flag bearer, you're actually uh, appointed as captain of the entire Australian team. It was an incredible honour and the thrill of walking out in front of 115,000 people at uh, Stadium Australia and introducing some of the greatest athletes this country can produce to the rest of the world and the joy and happiness that was in that venue at the time. It was one of the most unique experiences that I've ever had and uh, just incredibly honoured and humbled to have been able to do it. It's one thing to be a flag bearer, but it's another thing to be a flag bearer in your own country. And it was um, an incredible privilege. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you'd like to learn more, you can head to patreon.com forward slash Dylan Friends or you can head to the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Dylan Friends podcast. If you like the show, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, leave a review or even share with your friends. The show is produced by myself and Sam Bonza. Damon Jackman from Creative Edge Films is responsible for audio and visual production. The show is recorded at the Dylan Friends Studio in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to get in touch or suggest a guest or advertise with the Dylan Friends podcast, please email us at inquiries at dylanfriends.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.